and Raising Rare, we are bringing you the story of a young father whose son has an ultra-rare disorder known as Sedegatian type spondial metaphysial dysplasia, or SSMD. My name is Kevin Fryert. Each episode, we will find out what is going on in the life of Sanath and his son, Raghav. We will talk about Raghav's growth and development, ongoing and upcoming research, and the challenges and adventures that raising a child with a nearly unknown condition brings. Come join us to hear the story unfold. This week on Raising Rare, we are talking to the CEO of a new nonprofit called Open Treatments. His name is Sanath Kumar Ramesh. You heard me, right? Sanath has been very busy lately. He's launching a new venture, born of what he has learned and what he needs to find for treatments and a cure for Raghav. Before we get into the new organization, how's Raghav doing? Stable. Stable. That's it's always the best uh, news for us. He has been, you know, his happy self. Uh, he's been getting exposure to other kids. Now that COVID is is dying down a little bit, the, the first time he he saw someone else after, like someone else except uh, other than his doctors, he started crying because he didn't know what to make out of them. He didn't know people could, would come close enough and touch him that are not examining him physically. So that was a good learning experience for him. I'm sure he'll he'll get used to it because he's super social, but uh, it was fun. And is he still growing fast? Oh yeah, and heavy, very heavy. <laughs> My shoulders can can tell you the story of how heavy he is. Well, that's wonderful to hear. He's he's staying stable and growing. As if you didn't have enough going on, you decided to start a whole new organization. What is it called, and what are you hoping to achieve? Every time we we look at our to-do list and and feel like it's too full, we just flip onto the next page and add one more item to it. That's how Open Treatments Foundation was born. This is a new nonprofit organization uh, that we are starting to to pave the path for people like us who are suffering from these ultra-rare genetic conditions but don't really have a path to treatments. Through the Open Treatments Foundation, um, we I hope we are envisioning a world where you know every patient with rare genetic conditions will have at least one treatment accessible to them around the world, and our mission is to is to bring treatments to these genetic conditions um, regardless of rarity and geography. And this is where Open Treatments Foundation is different because our focus is uh, worldwide, not exclusively in the U.S. Our focus is also catering to patients irrespective of the rarity. And as a nonprofit organization, uh, we can explicitly have that focus because we are not profit-driven, but mission-driven. So why does the world really need open treatments? I think the, the answer to that question has to go almost actually a year, year before. Last March, actually, right around this time, last March, we had our first conference, research conference for GPX4. Uh, one of the items that came out of the research conference was that we should start working on gene therapy for this condition. Uh, because it's such a perfect condition to work for gene ther- work, work with gene therapy. So since April, I have been focusing a lot on you know bringing a gene therapy team together, getting the research started, and raising funds for it. And as I was getting through this journey, I realized that this is going to be incredibly expensive. Uh, we are talking about five to seven million dollars. Companies are not going to be investing in this condition 
because there is only nine patients worldwide. I've spoken to 15 plus biotech companies at this point and, and over 100 people in this industry. I probably say it's about 150 since last April. And, uh, and, and, the, and the answer hasn't changed. Everybody is super passionate to help me out in, in their personal capacity. They are, they are going above and beyond what they would spend for anybody else uh, who's asking for help and helping me out. But unfortunately, as an ecosystem, the biotech industry is not yet ready to take on these ultra, ultra rare conditions. And when you think about what happens to conditions that are a little bit more rare, they are still not commercially viable if you don't do all the right things to develop the treatments. So if you don't have the right models, if you don't have the right constructs or the right promoters, if you don't have the right experiments done in the right way, you could spend $5 million, but your condition, your, your, your program, your drug development program is not going to be licensable um, to a company. And why does it even matter? Because you know, if I think about what happens five years from now, try to get to a treatment. How will kids born with this disease five years from now get their treatments? Uh, the answer is, you know, you need a company to keep it sustainable. You need an approval. And that is where Open Treatments comes in because our focus is on inventing a model that will make these ultra-rare and also rare genetic conditions sustainable uh, via commercial investment eventually in the future. But our focus is on putting the power in patients' hands and having them drive their drug development journey, starting with gene therapy, of course, but we will expand to other therapeutic technologies as well to a point where their programs are, are strong enough um, that a company or a government entity or a philanthropic organization could license and you know, provide it to patients in perpetuity. So m- many, if not all of our listeners will know there are well over 7,000 rare diseases. That's about 400 million people in the world that are affected by them. 30 million in the U.S. alone. And if we stick with the U.S. for a minute here, only 5% of those have an FDA-approved treatment. And that's probably leading most nations in the world. You know that there's 5%. So that's a huge unmet medical need. What do you see as the problem? You know, when you, when you put that in front of somebody, that looks like an unmet medical need, but also an economic need. What do you think the problem is? And how do you frame it so that open treatments can succeed? This problem is many faceted. Um, and I just call, it, call this a systemic problem because you cannot really point fingers at one institution or one entity or one part of the system. It's actually a, a, a system, systemic problem that affects one and another. The first problem is that biotech companies are not able to license these ultra-rare therapies and take them forward because they don't have a business model. They cannot make money off of a $50 million investment from nine patients. And probably they're going to get maybe two patients diagnosed every year. Uh, out of these conditions, which makes them incredibly challenging to make any money out of them. But the companies uh, are, are still willing to put the risk in to these uh, diseases, but there is no path to regulatory approval. For any biotech company, their investors are going to be asking them, oh, you're putting money into this, how are you going get, to get approvals? And once you get approvals, then you can actually you know, commercialize this and market the drug and so on. And so the paths for regulatory approvals for ultra ultra rare like the diseases like these do not exist because you cannot do a clinical trial. How do you how you don't you don't even get statistical significance out of any measurement of 10 patients. You really need hundreds of patients. And and that has changed and we've gotten down to 
you know, 30, 40 patients now. But at that level, you cannot do a placebo-controlled trial. And there, there are so many other reasons there. But long story short, there is no strong path to a commercial approval. Now, it's still probably okay. Um, companies could still be fine with, you know, a, a non-commercial um, philanthropic venture here. But the problem is who is going to be reimbursing these patients? So when Raghav tomorrow, if Raghav tomorrow gets a treatment, for example, say a gene therapy, someone needs to pay the hospital bills for him to get admitted, for him to go through the treatment process, for him to do all the blood work and follow up. And who's going to be paying for all of that? And in addition to that, who's going to be paying for the drug? It's insurance companies. So when you go, to, when you go talk to payers, their challenge is, well, you're talking about investing in research now because this is not a commercially approved drug. And if it's not an approved drug, investing in research is not what their specialty is. You know, you could even go convince them as far as convincing them to say, oh, you can actually invest in research because, you know, it's going to reduce the, the future cost of, you know, treatments for these, for these kids. But then their rebuttal is that, well, patients don't stick with the same insurance provider for long enough for them to see any returns on their investment. And so now we're talking about people pointing fingers at each other. Now the insurance companies would point fingers at the government and say, oh, no, you know, Medicaid should do something about this, right? And, and we're talking about um, a problem that is so deep-rooted, that is multisystemic. And if you go down each of these verticals, you're going to find a lot more questions than answers. So open treatment solution is, is flipping the equation and saying, you know, we're having these theoretical conversations that there might be hundreds of therapies in the future. But what if we, we make that theoretical conversation more practical? What if we actually show to the world that in five years or 10 years, there's a very real possibility that thousands of therapies are going to enter the market? And they're going to enter the market not from the companies because they're not incentivized to bring them today, but from patients themselves. And so... Our focus with Open Treatments Foundation is to decentralize drug development and put the power in, ba- in, in patients' hand, hands and have them build a treatment for their conditions. And uh, we are going to be doing that using a software platform that I'm building as, uh, and launching as a part of the foundation. Tell me a little bit more about what you mean by decentralized drug development. When you think about drug development, right now, a bulk of all the work either happens in the academia, you know, professors doing research in their labs, and identifying, you know, a new new compound or a new technology, right? And then the the next big bulk of drug development happens in the biotech industry, where clinical trials happen. They do toxicology, they do all the commercialization activities, and then everything else actually pretty much happens in the industry. There are very few players that are pushing the drug development pipeline forward today, and you could almost think of this as, as centralization. There are probably hundred, if not thousands, of these players, right? Decentralization is the opposite of it, where you say, you know, what, what, what if you have millions of people pushing for research and treatments for the diseases they care about? What would the world look like? And it, it doesn't have to be truly decentralized, right? It can be quasi-decentralized to a point where rather than hundreds, you could have hundreds of thousands of people pushing forward. So you're basically creating scale from this, these you know, all these small-scale diseases, you bring them together and start saying, what if we work in common? What if we push forward and join efforts? So it's it's interesting. It's decentralization because it's going out to those small diseases, but it's centralization of the leveraging of the knowledge that's there. 
I think that's that's the trick. You you also called it in your materials um a paving a research path for foundations to deliver these candidates to that point where someone who can commercialize or make it accessible because maybe you don't need to commercialize for nine people. Maybe you just need to figure out how do we make enough for nine people. And so maybe it doesn't need to be commercialized, but it needs to be produced. But you said you've, you're going to create this path. You're going to pave this path. Now, you're really smart. You're really ambitious. You're, you're just impressive. But you've only seen the very beginning of that path. How does open treatments, how is it designed to keep that moving, that path moving in front of you even and into the unknown? I am learning as I'm going forward. This phrase that I've heard in this industry is, is, is you're building the plane as you fly it. It's fascinating because you're going to fall down eventually. And so I'm not doing this to get alone. I'm doing this together with several companies. Uh, I have part, I have collaborations with, with several companies, including um, you know, Odelia Therapeutics, which is a nonprofit biotech firm, Charles Zimmer uh, Laboratories, which is a CRO, Rarex, they do, non, they do natural history platforms, Global Genes, probably missing a, a bunch of them because my, my head is blanking at this point. But we're not doing this alone. We're doing this together. Uh, and I brought the ecosystem together because I specifically wanted every one of us to keep thinking about this problem and inventing a solution for it. And I am also going to be, you know, providing patient foundations with um, the right roadmap for them to, you know, the, the roadmap has already exist today for them to build a gene therapy treatment. And we will hand it, hand it over to them through the software platform as like a project management solution. And then in addition to that, we will connect them with drug development process experts that will help them move their program forward. And then I, I insist on the word process here because we are not focused on a specific disease or disease uh, gene of interest or our area of biology, but rather we are focused on the process of drug development, which means that we will work in tandem with patient foundations and their scientific advisory board. You know, if they come up with a brilliant idea to say, oh, you know, we should use this new AAV vector coming out of this lab using this technology and move it forward, we have the folks on, on in my collaboration network that know how to take that idea into execution. Um, and that is where the process comes in. So by, co by complementing you know, patient foundations with the process expertise, one, obviously I will learn, and two, they, their programs will move, move forward. I think the goal should be, and this is my humble opinion, that open treatments learns faster than even Sanath can. It needs to, it needs to take on its own again, accumulation of knowledge. And I think you're absolutely right to focus on process because that's the part that people never realize exists. It's like this flowing river that's actually a well-designed river if you know how to get into the right spot in it. And the river will take you. And you you may need to you know navigate in places and go down different canals or whatever, but you need to understand that underlying process. And it's not simple. Um, it's not, it's not automatic at all although it is a process and if you follow the process and push it you can you can get there yeah and, and the example the, the the another analogy that keeps coming to my mind is uh, is the software industry say 15 20 years ago when you wanted to start a company in the software industry it was a black art right people would pay you millions of dollars they don't know what you're getting out of that out, out, out of the end there you know some companies like google facebook or blockbusters but I'm sure there were thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of companies that, that went up the drain. And, and over the time, 
accelerators like Y Combinator showed up, Techstar showed up. They started putting a lot of knowledge on how to start a company on all the best practices out in the public. And, and today, you know, anybody with reasonable coding skills and, and some, some you know, determination can actually pretty much start a company and run a company for reasonable profitability without asking anyone, right? And the process of doing that is all in the public. It's very straightforward. Um, but on the other hand, drug development is an art now. It's, it's not a science. It's still an art. And you, you really have no idea. Only very few people have an idea. And even, even companies that get started are still struggling to learn how to do this right. Uh, because they look up to their, you know, to their elder brothers uh, that are the big Pfizer's of the world that you worked in for, for knowledge. But then, you know, it's just not out there. Yeah. And it's a, if you look at the biotech companies, if we could take like a history of them, I think they're going to run out of names for companies before they have more enough successful companies. They're like software was. They, they come and they go. They come and they go. And venture capital's in there and they're willing to take a shot at 100 of these if one can make it because it, it does pay off for, for venture capitals. I think that it's, it's a fascinating idea to try to put it out there to give people this process and the tools to manage it. I think it's just a fascinating idea um, that will help. We've seen lots of other tools out there. We've seen data tools like the registries, the national history studies. Um, we've seen tools about getting your foundation started, things like that. It now becomes easier to do if you can follow the pathway that they have. Great. So let's see if we can do this for, and I would say it's up to the point of like clinical development where you're actually getting into big clinical trials or any clinical trials. Yeah, most of that can be done, you know, through through smaller groups. And, and as you said, renting, renting your scientific space, your laboratories, your scientists, the skill sets. In fact, so a little more history, the big companies, up until about, I would say, year 2000, the big companies had all of this internally. And the value in those companies were their actual chemicals. What they had, their chemicals and their proteins that they had created, we called them our sample bank. And it was like, no, you don't reveal those to anybody, right? It was huge security issue. Okay, that's great. And then they shifted to this, well, hold it. We don't need to do that early work because we can get a lot more done if there were a lot of companies doing it. And then we can just harvest the best. So they all became drug developers. And then CROs came along and it's like, well, hold it. They can do the work. They can, they can crank the wheel. We just need what our core competence is, which is the process. And that can now drive, you know, us into being more of an investment house. And I know in at Pfizer, it really happened where we were we were buying more things, more companies, licensing products than we were creating internally. And and it was a huge disruption. I mean, we all were like, are you kidding me? We can't do that. It's working. We now have a vaccine within one year. Why? Because they license something in, put it into the process, and use their muscle to get it through. Okay, so now you're attacking the process. 
you're such a disruptor. You're going to you're going to take, you know, the the bread and butter of pharmaceutical companies away here. I'm probably not taking them away. I'm probably just making it accessible to more people. Um if I can if I can learn it myself. Right. Right. And it's you I think that 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 word accessible needs to be like bold faced in all your stuff. That's what it needs to be. It's how do we get it to other people or to people who normally wouldn't have access to it? And you talked about this being a global initiative, not a U.S. initiative. I think that that's another strength of what you're putting together, because now you'll reach more people. If you're reaching more people, you're going to get more input. And there's a lot of brilliant brains that live outside the United States. And so that's the way we need to we need to look at it if people wanted to follow the progress here or even contribute to the cause because i'm sure you're looking for for some funding wherever it comes from how do they go about doing that um yeah opentreatments.org is our website uh, where you can go and learn more about everything that we're doing there uh, we haven't announced a launch yet uh, we're planning on announcing on the 31st of march so yeah, you can learn a lot more about open treatments at opentreatments.org. That's our website. We are in the process of launching and announcing the launch on the 31st of March. And we are definitely looking for contributions, both in terms of funding um, and in terms of your brain power. If you have any expertise in this area and you would like to participate and contribute to the development of patient foundations, please reach out to me. My email address should be obviously on the website as well, but through the Raising the website as well. So over the last few episodes, we've had this theme running through just coincidentally with the guests we've had on about decisions, both big ones and small ones. And I know you've made some adjustments in life recently. Can you tell us about what's going on with you guys and how they're related to the launch of Open Treatments? Yeah. So we decided to pack our bags from Seattle and move to the San Francisco Bay Area. We decided that for a couple of reasons. One, Raghav needs a spine surgery to correct his scoliosis and kyphosis, which is an abnormal curvature in his spine. And uh, we, found, we found good doctors here down uh, in the Bay Area. And so we decided to move here. The second big reason is weather. Now, it sounds funny to say that, you know, I'm moving for better weather, but I think Given everything that's going on with our family, a sun, sunny weather might not hurt. It might definitely help our mental health is, is the thought process that we had. That's another big reason why we decided to pack our bags and move. Uh, again, all of this has been happening in the last three weeks, and we are already here in San Francisco. So hopefully in a few weeks, we will be all settled and, and you know back up and running. And that is happening in parallel with the launch of Open Treatments Foundation as well. So nothing, nothing happens serially in our life. Everything is just in parallel. And we have a fund, fundraiser going on. We have um, a couple of more fundraisers coming uh, in the future. So yeah, keeps us busy. Yeah, so people who want to get involved in the fundraisers, you need to search for a friend, Ramya Ramaswamy. Um, and she puts them out there, you know, every month or two, she's got something going on. Um, so I think that if you really want to pay attention to what's going on there, hook up with Ramya, you know, uh, Sonnet's working on, uh, setting up companies and, and chasing science. Uh, so 
The other thing that came up in our last discussion, the one with Miguel Sancho, was sleep is important. You know, and I heard from, I think you mentioned that you're starting to sleep more. Yes, I am. And uh, this happened as a direct effect of our conversation with Miguel. I, I, I don't know what about Miguel's conversation triggered it, but um, I actually felt like, you know, having someone tell that to me uh, after going through this really, really challenging journey, you know, put things in perspective. So I started sleeping a lot more. I have a Halo device that I track my sleep with. And, and you know, every, every night it, or every morning, it tells me that I had a great sleep. For more than like seven and a half hours so that's that's really exciting i i still wake up at 3 30 in the morning or four in the morning just out of uh you know habit but i, I i'm able to quickly go back to sleep that definitely has a, a big positive impact on on everything i do through the day so yeah yay for sleep yeah yay for sleep and yay for learning from miguel you know it, it, sometimes you need someone just to to, to wake you up so to speak Raising Rare is produced by Salem Oaks, empowering patients and caregivers to shape the future of medicine. CureGPX4.org is dedicated to finding a treatment and cure for SSMD. You can donate to CureGPX4 on the Raising Rare podcast page or at CureGPX4.org. You can continue to follow Raga's story next time on Raising Rare. <laughs>